From the School of Broadcast and Cinematic Arts at Central Michigan University, welcome to Depth of Field, a podcast highlighting the careers, experiences, and accomplishments of our broadcast and cinematic arts graduates. I'm your host, Patty Williamson. Join me as I chat with media pros who reflect on their time at CMU, their lives and careers after graduation. Along the way, they'll share advice they have for anyone looking to work in a wide variety of media fields. And that's why we call it Depth of Field. Welcome to Depth of Field. I'm Patty Williamson. Today we are talking to Olga Loganova. She is a 2010 graduate of our Broadcast and Cinematic Arts Master's program. Olga, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Hi there. It's so good to see you. It's nice to actually have you live in studio. We've had to do so many of these interviews via Zoom, so it's great that you could stop by the studio. Well, I actually love to be on the campus, and I come here quite regularly. I come to Michigan at least once a year because I, I have friends, and I found those friends wh wh while I was at Central. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you ended up in our BCA master's program. A lot of our students come from Michigan in the Midwest. You did not. You came from Belarus. Tell us a little bit about your journey of how you ended up settling on CMU. I was a journalist in Belarus. I was working for television, and I, by that time I had worked on television for six years. Um, and I was working for this very fun quasi-investigative show that was super popular. And we were doing running a story about the very secret, very elite club, which was called the Rotary Club, which is a very different thing there in Eastern Europe than it is here. And we just started chatting, and they were looking for applicants um, for a one-year program. And I said, like, I'll try. I had no hope that I could get it. And actually, I was selected for the second tour of interviews, second round of interviews, and then I got it. And I did not choose the school or the state or the town. The Rotary Club of Mount Pleasant chose me. And that's how I ended up here. I could choose between, um, I think, one year of college, but I said, like, I already have a bachelor's. So I went for the graduate school. That's fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about your career in Belarus before you got here. What was that like? What makes television reporting and investigative work different in Belarus than it is here in the States? Everything. Well, when you don't have a freedom of speech, it's kind of, it makes it very unique. You know, how you tell a story without saying anything or asking the question. So I loved my job there. That's the truth. And it was very exciting. I uh, did not study to be a journalist. I came from a very different end. Uh, and I was actually interested in directing and theater directing specifically. I had two years of PhD in theater directing at the time. But that was the avenue for me to stay creative in my own way while also getting paid. And uh, we did try to do a good job. And actually, this is when I did my first two documentaries. Right before I came to Central, I did two television shorts. And this is how I actually realized that this is what I want to do, probably as long as I can stay professional. There was a freedom of exploring. I found it then and there, and I had a great team, and we would just get in a car and go to the other end of the very small country, the size of New York, and do the craziest possible story. So one of my documentaries was about hermits, people who lived in the swamps, 
and forests and or were the only resident in a very remote village. And then I also did another documentary about people who survived incredibly difficult medical conditions. But of course, since Belarus is not a democracy, it was not a democracy then, there was a lot of navigating the rules of the system and you could not really practice journalism as we practice it here. And right now I am in an investigative team, so it's a very different process. It had to be a culture shock to come to Mount Pleasant, Michigan. Yes, it was. It was a culture shock. I remember my... and. I'm not even sure if it's appropriate on a podcast, but again, I'm from, I was from a capital of a very small Eastern European country, but from a capital. And I was in a very privileged position. I was in the media. And I also did a show that was about fashion. So all my friends were designers. I remember it vividly that the first day I came to Central to class, I was wearing designer pants, really high heels. I had the whole makeup and hair and half of the class was wearing PJs and sweatpants. And that was, that explained a lot <laughs> to me. I had to, it was a very, I wouldn't even say it was, yeah, it was a long learning curve for me. Yeah, I had to adjust your expectations, perhaps. Yeah, but also it was great. I loved it. I love Mount Pleasant. I keep coming back. So it was a really great experience. And you actually still have a family here through the Rotary Club that you're close to, don't you? Oh, they just adopted me. We don't even like, that's how we introduce ourselves, that we are family. And uh, yeah, it was a love at first sight. Like my my scholarship advisor uh, picked me up at the airport and we just clicked. And uh, she comes to New York. I come to Michigan. I spent all my Thanksgivings here. And yeah, it's it's wonderful, to be honest. So let's talk a little bit about the master's program. What are some of the things perhaps that you remember most vividly about your experience in the master's program? I remember that it was rigorous. It was a very new experience for me to begin with to study in a foreign language. And it was very serious. And I remember the methods class, actually. We talked about it earlier. And I thought, yeah, it kicked my my body parts in so many different ways. But it taught me a lot about how to think. The program taught me critical thinking for sure. And it was a great, though challenging, sometimes frustrating environment to explore. And I was I think I was very productive. I like I was looking back, I wrote five scripts. One of them was made into a movie back in Belarus. And my thesis was, well, my thesis I actually wrote with you. You were my thesis advisor. That was a big paper. And it was interesting. And even now I thought that some parts of it are very relevant. It was about framing in the news. But also I wrote a 80-page script for narrative fiction. And I'm not in narrative fiction, but that was a great exercise. And it helps me in my work today. I was going to ask, do you find that you use some of these skills and concepts that we talk about in grad school in the work that you're doing now in documentary film? Actually, uh, that was my choice. It was my strategic choice because I also, I'm a very pragmatic person, kind of try to, I realize that the way for me to stay creative is to be extremely pragmatic, even though, of course, I love to fantasize and I have this big idea that one day I will make this movie and I have already a concept of a movie. I also understand that in the niche I am right now and just because of who I am and where I come from, I need to take this very measured steps. 
I went to the film program, the Broadcast and Cinematic Arts program, to become better at documentaries because that I thought I could manage to do. Whether I have funding or as an independent filmmaker, I need to do everything on my own. So it was great. I don't regret, I actually very grateful for doing that because it's still the structure is still the same. It's three acts if it's a documentary. Many times it's three act structure. You need a protagonist who needs to go through to have this arc developed. So it's the same, whether it's a documentary or a long read. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the work that you are doing now. You've made several documentaries since you've graduated, but let's start from perhaps the beginning when you left the program at CMU. What was your next step getting back out into the quote unquote real world? So I graduated uh, and the next few years were rather tumultuous because that was the time when I moved back home knowing that I will be moving back to the States in a different status. I had to change my visa situations. I had a green card. And for me, it, I was again trying to figure out where I could go to do what I wanted to do. And I had a very rosy picture of what I could do at the time. And somehow I realized um, that New York was probably the best, of course, way for me, like for everyone who wants to do something like that's the way that's that's the city that will accept me with my fancy master's degree that, of course, yeah, I could just do everything I wanted there. And I I moved to New York 10 years ago and uh, that was a very rude awakening that sometimes it's not the degree, it's uh, more of the experience that you have in a place and the connections, which I didn't have. So it took me years to build, really years. I'm still doing it. What was the first job that you had when you got to New York? First job, I wouldn't, it was not professional job. And yeah, I had many jobs that I probably will not talk about because I had to do everything and anything that an immigrant does. But my first professional job was a, um, as a videographer and a photographer for a, a business publication for a, a business newspaper. And at that time, I was not really sure how to use cameras because I, there was like a break from a program. And also we kind of didn't, I learned the basics and also I learned things while I worked in television, but I wouldn't say that I was very fluent and I was very insecure too. And then I got this, finally, this application and it took me a year to get an invitation to come to an interview. So I asked a friend of mine to meet me at a camera store and show me how to turn it on. And this is exactly how I got a job. And I had to learn on the job. Well, I learned a lot, like I took classes, so it's not the full story. I took continuous education classes and I practice and read. At some point you ended up going back to school at Columbia. Yes. And you've been studying more in-depth documentary making. Can you talk a little bit about that program as well? By that time, I have I, I had lived in New York for probably seven years, and I worked. I freelanced for Radio Liberty, and I actually started the video content production, which turned into a big documentary production. And I also worked for Voice of America, but I was kind of still in this box of an immigrant journalist, documentary filmmaker working for a very specific limited audience and um, I wanted to kind of branch out. I also worked on my own stuff um, and that was hard and I realized that, and again, I don't know how much of it is useful, but New York is a very, very 
difficult and very elitist city. You can be, many people are absolutely brilliant. Many, like, just have to be because the competition is so fierce. But your resume matters and where you go also matters. And so there was a trend that people would only hire from several schools. And I realized that if I wanted to stay in the profession, which I wanted to stay in the profession and advance, I had to go back to school. And I went for another master's and I kind of dug deeper in the documentaries. My thesis was a feature documentary which I'm still finishing, but my specific angle is science. It's science reporting, science documentaries. Let's talk a little bit about the documentaries you have completed. We have a film festival here in Mount Pleasant, the Central Michigan International Film Festival. And in 2020, you were here to do a Q&A with one of your short docs. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So actually, miraculously, 2020 was a prolific year for my documentaries. I finished two and managed to showcase and show and sell two documentaries. The one that wa- um, that I presented here uh, in Mount Pleasant uh, was years in the making. It was uh, about the Russian-speaking motorcycle club, and I really followed them for six years. I started the project with a different aim and different different purpose. We were aiming for a TV show but then the project just changed and I really wanted to finish it and um, I pitched it and the company wanted it so I edited it and I liked it. I think it was was very cathartic for me at least. Yeah, and the second one, um, was that the question or should I? Yeah, I was just going to say I really love the documentary but I could also completely see it as a television show as well. I think it would be fascinating to follow this motorcycle club and it has such a an intense cultural component to it uh, that I think it would be great to watch it as a TV show too. Yeah, I think yeah, it had everything in it. That could be a reality TV show and they are so narcissistic. I love them and I hate them because they are like my family. It's like their characters yeah, people would watch that for sure. But again, it's very hard to work, I must say, with... Yeah, we should not say that. I would <laughs> just love them. But I also, they're not the only club that I've worked with somehow. I also have another documentary that's kind of currently on hold because I'm waiting for the funding and I'm looking for the funding for that one. But it's about an um, American motorcycle club. And that's a fascinating story. And I really, really, really hope to finish it. It's really worth it. It's about this American heroes, two veterans who come back wounded uh, from wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they kind of try to redefine themselves and find themselves through that rising. And then and then life hits them and they go their different ways. One joins Hell's Angels. He's now with the Hell's Angels and the other still riding with the original club. And it's interesting. I'm just curious if you've started riding motorcycles after all of this. I've learned how to ride a bicycle. <laughs> That's last, close. Last year. Well, I rode motorcycles with a camera while holding on to other people. But um, no, 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 no. Bicycle. Bicycle with a helmet on a bike lane. Still terrifying. It's terrifying. <laughs> In New York, don't do it. I bet. So what about the other documentary from 2020? So um, the other documentary is actually about COVID. Uh, And uh, in March, well, in March, we'll remember that. I think COVID hit everywhere. And I remember the day 
it was March 14th when I I was working for a show and we were in this big office and we started getting those alerts and those were rumors it was scammers that the city is going to be shut down that the National Guard moves in and will block all the bridges and the subway will be cut off and we started panicking people had families and I knew that I couldn't walk it would be like a four-hour walk home and then our management came and said like you know you need to pack up and leave now that's it and that was a scary moment and within weeks many people got laid off including myself because the whole production um well, shut down and but also we could see what was going on the constant sirens and the hospitals overflown and i just really thought what i could do to kind of contribute not to the pandemic but to the effort to i don't know to do something in my own little way and i thought that i could do what i'm trained to do to report on it and since i was a at this time a freelancer or unemployed i had some time and uh, i just decided to do this short documentary and i found i tried to get into hospitals which was impossible but i found two doctors who were willing to film inside the hospitals and also tell their stories to me and through the months of april i filmed them and uh, vice uh, got interested in it and i filmed a little bit more in the fall when we thought that the pandemic was over and uh, i finished this sh short documentary and it ran on vice still there were you worried at all for your own health and safety while you were shooting that we i was worried for the doctor's safety honestly i think um I would hate to endanger someone someone else. Uh, and we talked a lot about safety measures. And we talked on the phone and then we had we followed protocol. Whatever they said I would do. I was always masked. I was always wearing gloves. I would take my boots off outside. I would like sanitize my equipment every time I come back. So neither of us got sick, which means we did something right. And we did it to an extent that I would try to put plastic in a car that I would ride in. And I tried to go with the same driver. So there was a lot of dancing around. But I think it was worth it. There was not enough coverage. Not enough. I think, um, yeah, it, this pandemic could have been different if people knew what was going on inside the hospitals. And what are your plans with that documentary now? So that's the one that Vice picked up. Can people access that now to watch it? It's online. It's online. It's just Google follow to doctors on the front line of the pandemic. It's right there on YouTube. And uh, you can watch it. I'll try to submit it to the festival again. So if you like it, you can come to Mount Pleasant and watch it here. Absolutely. For sure. And you're working on new work now. Yes. So I'm still finishing. Well, I, I had to make... A tiny break uh, which was very unfortunate because I am re-editing my feature documentary that I shot in Brazil in 2019 and the film is about yeah I need to rethink how to present it because my kind of working log line is very dry it's uh, when I just say oh it's about the deforestation of medicinal trees which is nothing but in essence I spend time with incredible people in different parts of the Amazon, uh, in two states, in Amazonas and Pará. And I spend time with mostly with women because they're kind of right now in charge of saving the forest and also their traditions of healing. And through them and their stories, through the story of a midwife who has made it her life's purpose to protect the forest. 
I kind of show what happens and how important it is to preserve the trees because for, for, for many people in northern Brazil, this is the only access they have to healthcare, but also preserve culture because culture is important. How did you find that topic to start investigating? So again, this uh, film started as my thesis, which had to be grounded in science. But also, it, I wanted to do something that was relevant for me. And uh, my family is from Siberia. And uh, my in my family, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, this is what they did. They would go to Taiga, to the Taiga forest, and pick up barks and uh, parts of trees and herbs when it was warm. And that was their way to do healthcare. They were like their own healers and also shared it with the community. I have never been to Siberia. That's actually my goal to go there. But I wanted to do something like that because again, we all know what happens to the forest and to the trees. So I started doing research and a lot of research had to be done from New York all the scientists that I had to talk to, to see if there is a story there, to see if it happens. But I, it was not an option to go to Siberia at that time, even though probably it was an option. I just didn't consider it. I wanted to go to Nigeria because I found this paper that started it all. It was a paper about the village that basically was almost eviscerated because they lost one particular plant. But my thesis advisor didn't really want me to go to Nigeria. Um, and so I said, oh, okay. Uh, I'm pretty sure that happens in Brazil as well, which of course it does. And so I went to Brazil. Yeah, that's but no. in, yeah, that's interesting. I'm like, do I ask you why you <laughs> didn't want you to go to Nigeria? Because it, yeah, it was very, it was dangerous. It was, um, it was not far from Boko Haram, and so for me to mm. go there, I would have to have like protection, security guards, and um, I didn't have the funding for it. I had a tiny, tiny grant that I had to make everything work with, and um, somehow we decided that Brazil was probably much safer which it was not. But I think it's all part of the big story because I still want to do the uh, trilogy. I still want to do the next film in Nigeria and another one in Siberia about the same topic. Because I think it, well, yeah, if we lose the trees, what's going to happen to us? I have to say, you seem pretty fearless when it comes to the topics that you tackle with your documentary work. You're not just doing feel-good fluff pieces. You're really digging into some major issues and putting yourself into situations in areas of the world that you haven't been to and traveling in situations that might not always be safe. Is that something that concerns you at all? I am pretty fearless, that's true. And thank you for that. And I think I learned it um, from my grandparents, actually. Um, I, I wouldn't know how to live otherwise. I don't want to get hurt. It's always a concern. And there are like there is this kind of movement of people who would go to the very front line. I wouldn't do what I did without taking all the necessary steps to stay safe. Because my idea is kind of longevity in in the profession and also just I don't want to get hurt again I want to make more films so I am fearless but again strategic and very pragmatic so I probably will go to Nigeria with a bodyguard and you have another project you're working on right now too yes I can say that I am still working on it um, so I'm from Belarus and uh, there is a huge political and human rights and humanitarian crisis going on um and it's been going on for almost three decades, really. But last year, it just it kind of 
boiled over, if that's the phrase. The person who has been in charge, who has been president uh, of Belarus for over 26 years, now 27, he again claimed that he won the election. But this time people knew that he did not because with the advance of the IT and apps, and Belarus is very IT savvy, very tech savvy, um, we had alternative platforms for voice counting. So we knew he did not. And people openly supported a different, like another candidate, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya. And we all, all over the world, and we, like Belarusians were pretty mellow. We try, like, I wouldn't say that we, we were politically active ever, and not because we're like uninterested, but just due to the historical process of where the country is, how it has been treated, what happened to it, what happened to the people. So everyone is just managing their lives, but it was not impossible to manage your life because you saw that the election was stolen and people went out into the streets just to show protest that they knew that they won. But the police, basically Lukashenko, gave orders to open fire. And the, the word, that's not actually supported, but there are groups that showed that there was live ammunition used in the streets. Many people were, but also just like the amount of terror that happened and the amount of the arrests. 7,000 people were arrested in the first 72 hours. And then they were tortured. There were like lots of horrible allegations of sexual violence in the prisons, like everything. It was just horrendous. So again, I thought that we need to do something. I, as a Belarusian living in the States, reporting on it. I reported, I did another report for Vice. I uh, partnered up with a colleague of mine and we, um, for the last year and a half almost, we've been working on a long read about the situation in Belarus through the experience of people who survived um, the prison, this horrible prison of Krestina, or who also were targeted by stun grenades, who lost body parts and had to flee. So we just submitted the draft last week, now waiting. And that's pretty serious material. And being from Belarus, does this mean, can you go home? I'm not planning to. I, I don't, I'm not planning to. It's, uh, I think Belarus is like uh, right now the one of the last places like for safety of journalists. I think Freedom House did the ranking and we're like last or the second from the last, like the end. So I don't, I'm not expecting to. Do you feel that there's a connection between your background growing up in Belarus and being under an authoritarian regime and not having that freedom of speech that perhaps drives you to be an investigative reporter and to do the documentary work that you do? It's a mixture. Uh, I wouldn't say that I consider my... I, I am doing investigative reporting right now. I'm still a documentary filmmaker, and sometimes it's hard for me to reconcile. I was thinking about why I do what I do, and I think there is a lot of it that comes from my background, and it's not... I'm, of course, really angry with the regime, any totalitarian regime. I just, I have my own thoughts about the concept of power to begin with. But I think culture has a lot to do with it. And the fact, I, I, I was born in the Soviet Union, it was communists, but, or then socialist or whatever you name it. It's not an individualistic society. I think this is what at the core of it. So we kind of were raised feeling and thinking that the good of the group 
is more important than your own group, which is, of course, when it's um, taken to the extremes, it's not good. Of course, as an individual, you, you have to take care of your own priorities and your own needs and wishes. But I think in, in crisis, I think there is something about it, thinking about the good of the people rather than your own good. And so I consider myself in public service as a journalist. My work is for the public, so I need to do something. And that's also how I, like, I feel just good. I think it makes like my life makes sense. It might not be like glamorous, but at least to me, I do something. Tiny things, very tiny things, but I try them not to be selfish and to move culture and society in the right direction, or at least not in the wrong direction. What advice would you have for students today who might want to make documentaries, much like yours, or perhaps different types of topics? What are the things they really need to focus on? What do they need to know? I think that they need, the first thing they need to know is that it's a marathon, not a sprint. For some, it happens overnight. Like people would just make one film and everyone talks about it. For many, I think for many, many people, it will take years. And so patience and grit is very important. Reading and watching documentaries is very important. I think it's extremely important to have a mentor, which, uh, again, you're very lucky if it's a living human being that you can talk with or show your work. And sometimes it's not. Uh, like my mentor is Werner Herzog. I'm sure he doesn't, well, he doesn't know me. I know him. I've been to his lectures. I have his books and I watch his films. But also it's, I think it's also very important when, if you're still at school or taking a class, get to know people who are there with you and if possible, make friends and make lifelong friendships because those are the people, especially if you are like-minded, you might end up working together and that will be the biggest resource. Because especially in independent filmmaking, getting money, maybe some people are very successful at that, but it's very, very difficult. So it's mostly you rely on the skills that you and your team has. So make those connections. They will make you stronger. And you're actually working at Columbia now. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing? I am a reporting fellow at Columbia Journalism Investigations. Uh, this is an investigative unit that is housed by Columbia University. It specializes in loan form investigations that cover either public health or environment. Uh, we partner with bigger media outlets. Uh, the previous investigation, the previous cohort worked with NPR and they published a series of stories on worker heat death. This year we have partnered up with the Center for Public Integrity, another investigative unit out of Washington, D.C. And we are looking into the communities that are experiencing extreme climate change risks and, and that they're basically pushed to the brink of existence where they are. Um, some either like relocating as we speak speak or need to consider it but don't want to there like there's a plethora of situations but also we're looking at it from the federal accountability angle so we're looking whether federal programs like FEMA or HUD are doing enough to help them and we, we know that they don't and I hope to be do, like producing a documentary for this job project where do you see yourself maybe 10 years down the road? 10 years down the road, I want to see myself on the road with a camera somewhere working. Like, I, I am a documentary filmmaker. Uh, it's not a straight line, but that's what I do. And I think that's what I want to be doing in 10 and 20 years. I don't know which country I want to, I want to 
to be somewhere else. I love exploring different cultures to an ex uh, ethically as ethically as possible and not extractively. But that's what I want to do. But well, if I'm on a surfboard somewhere, it's fine too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I know you've now taken up surfing. Yeah, I think it's the best in the time of chaos. Doing something even more chaotic, very challenging, where you have very little. Con I think it really helps because, and I think it's kind of a good metaphor of what's going on right now because we cannot control anything. Like you make plans, and they, yeah, they mean nothing really because the reality kicks in and you have a very different situation, and. That's the same with the water. You get there and you think that, oh, you just learned that. You you know now you're going to be practicing your right turns or left turns. And then you're just like wiped out over and over again. And the the way for you to survive is just to give in and relax and stop thinking. And I think that's what we need to do with life right now. Sometimes we just like relax and just stop thinking. Of course, don't stop thinking. But in a way... Yeah, don't grasp. Maybe don't overthink. Over, don't overthink. Don't overthink because you've already gotten here, so you know how to do it. Just find the flow. I think that's a good point to end our conversation. But Olga, it's been so nice to see you and uh, talk to you today. Thank you so much. It has been very nice to talk to you too, and I hope we talk again soon. I'm sure we will. And good luck to everyone. Come to Central. Great program. That's another episode of Depth of Field, a production of the School of Broadcast and Cinematic Arts at Central Michigan University. Thanks to my engineer, Michael Pawarski, and my producer, Allison Biss. I'm Patty Williamson. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>